celebrate our 14th wedding anniversary with Adam in New England, and so we took off and we went. And in the process of going on that trip, of course, Adam wanted to know what we wanted to do and what would be interesting to us. And, uh, and the truth is, uh, Adam didn't really care about what was interesting to us. He wanted to show us what was interesting to him. And that's... <laughs> You know, that's typical of Adam. You, you don't know Adam, but that's just kind of how he is. But he, you know, asked us obligatory questions. What would you like to do? Well, for me, it was very important to me to visit Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine solely for the reason that those were the only three states that I had never visited, and I wanted bragging rights to say I've been to all 50 United States. And so I said to Adam, no matter what else we do, we've got to visit those three states. Well, that really wasn't on Adam's agenda. And uh, he wanted us to visit New York City. uh, And and Chris and I had never spent any time in New York City at all. I'd driven through a couple of times, but I'd never spent time in the city. And it was really important for Adam that we spend some time in Boston. Now, uh, I had been to Boston years ago, and I'd been to Harvard University and walked around the city, and, you know, I was just kind of like ho-hum whatever. But, but, boy, Boston was important to Adam that we get to Boston. And, and so I said to him, well, that's fine. We can spend a day in Boston, but we've got to get to Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine because I've got to tick those off my checklist of the 50 states. So Adam finally relented, and he said, all right, we can spend one day driving through those three states, but we have to end in Boston because we'll spend the night in Boston, and then the next day we will spend the entire day touring the city. And so that's what we planned to do. So early one morning, it was the day of our anniversary, early one morning we got up and uh, we loaded up in Adam's truck. Now Adam doesn't spend a lot of money on vehicles, and he has (laughs) driven the same Toyota uh, Toyota Tacoma, you know, the little, it's, it's like a little aluminum can, and, um, and, and Tacomas are nicer now, but Adams is about 20 years old, it's got 200,000 miles on it, and it's like climbing into a pop can, and so we're going to go on this hundreds of miles trek, and, and we loaded in there, and, and Adam was driving, I'm in the passenger seat, because I literally can't fit in the jump seat, and my poor wife is relegated to that back seat, you know, that's like sitting on a board. How many of you have been in the back seat of a Toyota Tacoma? All right, you know what I'm talking about. You've been in one? Holy smokes. That would not be comfortable for you or me, Terry. So we loaded up in this Toyota Tacoma. We go off driving, and, and what the plan was, we'd mapped out our, our route. We were just kind of going to skim through the southern part of Vermont and then the southern part of New Hampshire and then, and then uh, shoot up to Maine. And the, the goal in Maine was just to get across the border, just for bragging rights, right? And we were going to find a restaurant. It was our anniversary, so we were going to find a restaurant where we could eat Maine lobster on our anniversary. And so that was the goal. And then after that, we're going to shoot down to Boston, spend the night in a hotel. So we get into the truck, and we're getting ready to drive, and Adam pulls out a GPS unit. And I'm thinking, hey, this is really cool. Adam is so up with the times, and he's got the little thing on the dash that you mount onto it, and he plugs it all in and everything. And uh, we get to driving, and then pretty soon Adam starts fiddling with the GPS unit, and it's obvious that he has no idea how the thing works. And... (laughs) 
and so I'm thinking, boy, this is going to be this is going to be interesting. And I didn't want to insult Adam, but I was just not sure that he was going to navigate where we needed to go. And so I pulled out my BlackBerry. I left my BlackBerry back there. I, I pulled out my BlackBerry, and I had a GPS navigational system installed on my BlackBerry. So I said, you know, Adam, I know how this thing works, and and we can use mine. And he said, no, I borrowed this GPS from a friend of mine, and it, there's no way your BlackBerry is going to be better than this professional GPS system. And so, so I thought, okay, uh, we'll see how this works. So we're navigating through New England, and we're looking at trees and leaves and, and beautiful scenery and stuff. And, and he's got this GPS thing set with this, you know how you can choose different voices for the GPS? And he's tr- I just found out that you can program a GPS to sound like Homer Simpson. And so... <laughs> So, like, if you make a wrong t- turn, Homer goes, don't! <laughs> That's how you know you're going the wrong way. But Adam had selected this British woman, you know? And so as we're going, this, this woman says, at the next intersection, turn right. <laughs> and, and what we found out as, as we got going was this British lady that, that we gave a name to, we finally called her something, I can't remember what it was, but we gave her a British name, she would send us to the wrong places. And especially when we got to Maine, we're looking for a restaurant, and with a GPS, you're just supposed to, you know, type in lobster or something, and it should take you to a restaurant. This, this navigational thing is sending us in completely wrong directions. And so at this time, I'm thinking, you know what? I've used my BlackBerry navigational system quite often. I know that I can get us where we need to go. And so I just disabled the audio on it. And while Adam is thrashing around trying to find places, I'm watching my own GPS. And mine is smarter than his. (laughs) Well, the end of the story was we had a, a wonderful lobster dinner in Maine, and then we headed south to Boston. And when we drive into the city... Uh, everything just gets crazy. We start driving into Boston around 8.30, 9 o'clock at night, and there is still incredible traffic. How many of you have been to Boston, driven in Boston? Not very many of you. It is a huge city. And we're driving, and Adam now has lived in a metropolitan area for a while, and we are discovering that Adam in the city doesn't get scared. He just gets fearless. And so he is lead foot. He is going to outrun everybody on that freeway. And I'm watching the GPS and realizing that this nice little British woman in his GPS can't even keep up with how fast Adam is driving. We've plugged in the address of the hotel. Adam's never been there before. doesn't have a clue where he's going. We're trusting this British lady with this nice, gentle voice. And... Uh, And all of a sudden, I realize, as we're speeding past an exit, that as she says, at the next exit, exit to the right. She's saying it just as we're passing the exit that we needed to get off on. And so we had to drive, you know, whatever it is, a mile or so. We get off the freeway. We're trying to figure out how to get back going the opposite direction. That, in a a city, is crazy chaos, trying to find your way just back onto the freeway. We finally get on the freeway, 
and it happens again. She tells us to exit just as we're passing the exit. So at that point, I said, Adam, there's no way we're following this crazy British lady. She doesn't know what she's doing. I said, I've got my GPS. I will tell you when to exit. And so we get off the freeway again. We turn around, and this time I'm watching. And you know what? My GPS can track how fast Adam is driving. Mind you, he never slowed down this whole time. He's still just zooming down the road. Well, the problem was we had to take this series of complex turns, uh, taking an off-ramp and then a ramp off the off-ramp and then another ramp off the off-ramp to do almost a complete 360 to get to where our hotel was. Every time we drove by that exit, we could see the hotel that was right there, probably from here to that car, but we couldn't get there. We couldn't get there because of all these off-ramps. But when I finally abandoned the British lady and was paying attention to the GPS that was tracking us somehow, we were able to finally get to our destination and we checked into this wonderful hotel and we stayed there in Boston. There's lots more to the story, but my point is, as we navigate life, we have to have some sort of navigation system that will get us to the destination that we want to go. And... uh, And this is really what we've been talking about the last three weeks. If you're here for the first time in this message series, let me just catch you up just briefly. Uh, This message series is called The Flesh, the Law, and the Spirit. And uh, we're talking about how these three things that the Bible talks about interact with each other to help us navigate this thing that we call life. Two weeks ago, I talked about navigating through the flesh. This is a drawing that I drew last week. I don't know if this will help you. But, but we talked about the flesh two weeks ago. The flesh in the Bible is that thing that represents our earthly nature, our desires, our impulses. God created our flesh uh, without sin And in the Garden of Eden, if you know the story of Adam and Eve, you know that that originally there was no sin, there was no disobedience, until Eve and Adam took that forbidden fruit and they ate of it and their eyes were opened. We talked about shame and, and all those kinds of things and how living by the impulses of this flesh really ends up in dishonoring God. In fact, one of the things, uh, the, the memory verse for two weeks ago that I gave you, and I know many of you are, are uh, learning those memory verses. The memory verse was that if you're controlled by your flesh, you cannot please God. If this flesh is controlling you, you cannot please God. And then last week we talked about the law. And, uh, and the law in, in the Bible specifically talks about the law of Moses and all of those rules and regulations that the Jewish people of Jesus' day were so concerned with fulfilling, all 600 and some of them. And the Pharisees went one step further and put a fence around the law. And they developed what is called the Midrash that was just more rules and regulations. And Paul in Galatians and in Romans says that the law interacts with the flesh in such a way that although the law is righteous and good and holy, what it does is when we just try to follow rules and regulations, it arouses the desire in us just to do the very thing that we're not supposed to do. And so that's a problem as well. And if we, if we live by our impulses, if that's our navigational system, we get into trouble. If we live by the law, we find that we will never be good enough, and that's not a sufficient navigational system. 
But the good news is, Paul shares with us, there's a third way, and it's the right way, and that's living by the Spirit. That's what we'll be talking about this morning, is living by the Spirit. Uh, I wonder about you this morning. Where are you at in this navigational thing as you try to figure out life? Are you one of those people that just lives by the impulses of your body and your flesh? I got a phone call this week from from somebody who uh, I'm very close to, and, and he's been struggling in his marriage for several months. And he called me this week, and he said, Russ, uh, I'm just struggling. He's trying to make a decision whether or not he even wants to be married to his wife anymore. And he said, Russ, I'm struggling. And he said, in particular, he said, I'm not physically attracted to my wife anymore. And he said, if I'm not physically attracted to her, I don't know how I can stay married to her. Well, it's not, it's not that she has changed. There's nothing different. They've just been married a short time. Nothing is different except he is taking all his cues from the flesh. And we talked about this this week with him. And, and I told him, if you are just living to please your own desires, it's in- inevitable that everything is going to fall apart. And many of you in this room today, that might be where you are. You're just living to please the cravings of your body. Others of you, and many of us come from a religious background that was very structured and rigid with rules and regulations. And I've talked about my experiences a lot about how that has just led to condemnation and guilt and shame and ultimately failure because you just never can seem to be good enough. And many of you would probably say with me, you have begun tapping into this really wonderful thing called walking in the Spirit. I want to explain this to you today, uh, what that means uh, in the last five or six months, I have, I have personally been on a quest to just immerse myself more than I ever have in my whole life in living in the Spirit and walking in the Spirit and living in obedience to the Spirit. It's completely different. And today I want to share some of, some of my insights with you about my own personal journey. And then uh, three weeks from today, the last message in this series... Uh, I'll give you even more tools about how it is and and how you can learn to walk and live in the Spirit. Does that make sense? Uh, We're going to end our message today or our our service today. We're going to end with a time of prayer. If this is new for you, if you don't know what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit or to walk in the Spirit, uh, you will have an opportunity today to pray with somebody who can help you enter into that life. And I believe that many of you this morning are going to begin a breakthrough in your lives as you discover how to live uh, in God's power. Let me start uh, talking about the Holy Spirit this morning by giving you a little bit of a history of the Holy Spirit, or uh, I think what I put in your notes this week is the story of the Spirit. The story of the Spirit. And, and, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but But if you're new to this thing, this Holy Spirit thing, or even this Christian thing, you might not know a lot about the Holy Spirit. Um, And there is a story about how this all unfolded in the Bible. Uh, The first thing that I want you to know today is that before Jesus, 
God gave his spirit to only a few people. And this is the first thing you can write in on your notes if you're, if you're following along on your note cards. Before Jesus, God only gave his spirit to a few people. And if you've ever read through the Old Testament, you will remember that, that God would pour out his spirit on, on people that were specially selected, people like prophets that God would use to speak his word to his people. Or quite often he would pour out his spirit on kings or priests that served in the temple. These people were sometimes, but not always, said to have received uh, the outpouring or the gift of God's spirit in their lives. One example is David, who eventually became uh, probably the most famous and the most effective king of the nation of Israel. And the story is told in the book of 1 Samuel that David became king when God sent the prophet Samuel looking for the new king. Saul had fallen into sin and disobedience against God. He was the existing king. And Samuel told, God told Samuel that he had rejected Saul as king and there was a new man that God was going to choose. It was David. And in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 13, we read this. Samuel took a horn of oil and he anointed him or poured this oil all over David in the presence of his brothers. And then this is what it says. From that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Let me just say that again. From that day on, the spirit of the Lord came on David in power. And that was really cool if you were David, but just run-of-the-mill people like you and me, there was no Holy Spirit. It was just David and Samuel and a few others that had the Spirit of the Lord. But one day, this is the next thing you can fill in on your card, God promised that the Spirit would be poured out on all people. There's a wonderful prophecy towards the end of the Old Testament in the book of Joel that says this, And afterward, or in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And God promised that there would come a time when the spirit wouldn't be an exclusive thing, but every person that walked in a relationship with God could have this anointing and this power of the Holy Spirit. And this came with the ministry of Jesus. This is the third thing you can jot down on your note card. Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to everyone who trusts in him. Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to all who trust him. On the day of Pentecost, which was uh, shortly after Jesus had gone into heaven, Jesus had told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem and pray for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And when that day came and that event took place, if you're familiar with the story, you remember that there was this sound like wind in the room where they were praying. 
and there were, uh, it, it looked like beams of fire that rested upon the heads of every person, and they all began to speak and to pray and to prophesy in languages that they had never learned, languages that they'd never even heard in some instances, and there was this incredible power. It was so crazy that these disciples started spilling out into the streets and speaking these languages that they'd never heard, and all of the foreigners who were in Jerusalem began to hear the gospel being preached in their own native languages. It was incredible, and it was, it was strange. And Peter said this when he was being questioned about what was going on. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What was happening was there was something new that was happening and it was something powerful and it was something that would change the lives of all of those disciples and it has been changing Christians through the centuries up until this very day. It was the outpouring of the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm using this metaphor of a navigational system. It breaks down at some point because the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives is much, much more than a navigational system. But at, 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 at its very least, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives does work as a navigational system because when we're making decisions and trying to decide how to live our lives, we can live in the impulses of the flesh, or we can try to fulfill the minutiae of a legalistic system, or we can learn how to listen and be empowered by the Spirit who will give us point-by-point instructions. And he never falls behind where we are. He's always with us without fail. So that's kind of the story of the Spirit. Let me spend a little more time talking about how the Holy Spirit helps us. How does the Holy Spirit help us? Three things that I want you to know this morning. The first one is this. The Spirit opposes the flesh. The Spirit opposes the flesh. We've been talking about the flesh and the law and the Spirit uh, these last three weeks. We talked last week about how the flesh and the law intersect. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5, that the Holy Spirit actually opposes the flesh. Listen to what he says in verse 17 of Galatians chapter 5. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Let, Let me illustrate Uh, again, like I did last week. Um, I'll stay out of that light there. This is the diagram that I I used last week to illustrate that that the flesh and the law intersect. Can you all see this okay? The flesh and the law intersect, and, and where we live is in this black area where they intersect. And I talked about how the law actually serves to arouse our desires to live in ways that that God forbids. And, and we have a problem because there's this angst inside of us. There's this conflict inside of us when we are living in the intersection of flesh and law. Now, if I were going to diagram the role of the Spirit, it would look like this. Here's, here's the world 
of the flesh. I have to stand on this side because I'm right-handed. Here's the world of the flesh. If the law intersects the flesh, the spirit comes against the flesh and opposes it. It's like there are these forces moving in opposite directions, flesh and spirit, and they oppose each other, but they repel each other. The world of the flesh and the spirit don't intersect like the world of the law and the flesh do. They oppose each other. They're contradictory to each other. Let me illustrate it another way. I have a a jar of water here, and if this water represents our flesh, our desires, our impulses to meet our own needs, and this food coloring, which I'm probably going to spill all over myself, this food coloring can represent the law. When we learn what is right and wrong, oh, that's just beautiful, that law comes in to the world of our flesh, and what does it do? It it completely intersects with it. And, and it begins to blend with it. And really what Paul tells us is that the law does nothing to help us overcome the flesh. It just empowers the flesh and arouses these desires of the flesh. But the Holy Spirit is like oil. In fact, in the Bible, uh, oil is, a, is often a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And when the spirit encounters the flesh, Paul says it opposes the flesh. And you see what happens? They don't mix. Now there's bubbles. They don't mix. (laughs) I love it when my illustrations don't work. But this is working. You see those water bubbles are settling to the bottom because oil and water do not mix. The spirit and the flesh do not mix. Paul says they are opposed to one another. They are opposed to one another. Victoria, would you put that that verse back up on the screen? I want you to see this verse one more time. Sorry about that. She, She sent us to black because I was walking in front of that screen all the time. There we are. Look at this again. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other. Now look at that last phrase. In fact, read that out loud with me, would you? To keep you from doing the things you want to do. This opposition keeps you from doing the things you want to do. Now at at first sight, you might think that what that's describing is this inner turmoil. It's not. What this is describing is that we, in our fleshly nature, want to do things, but the Spirit empowers us to not do those things. In fact, a more literal translation of that phrase would say, you may not do whatever things you wish. And so those of us that are still struggling with some of the desires of the flesh... We can be encouraged to know that when we are living in the power of the Holy Spirit, he will prevent us from doing the works of the flesh. All right, does this make sense? I see lots of furrowed brows. Let me go on to the next point. Let me help drive this home. The second thing 
The second way that the Holy Spirit helps us is this. The Spirit empowers us to put the flesh to death. The Spirit empowers us to put the flesh to death. Bryce, would you just get rid of this for me? Bryce was a good helper to us for many, many months here at Connect, and he and his family have moved to Butte, and it's good to have him and his brothers and sisters back today. Thank you, Bryce. The Spirit empowers us to put us to death. Look at these scriptures. You can just read them with me off the screen. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says this. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And verse 13 of that same chapter says this. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The Holy Spirit empowers us to put the flesh to death. Galatians 5 and verse 24 says this. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Say the word crucified. Say it again. Crucify. If you crucify something, is it going to keep thrashing around and raising itself back to life? No. If we crucify the flesh with its passions and desires, it is dead. And then Galatians 5 verse 16 says this. Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, I'm convinced, I'm absolutely convinced, because this has been true most of my life, that this is not where most Christians live. Most of us just live in this weird tension of having these overwhelming desires inside of us that control us most of the time, and this sense of do's and don'ts and legalism in our minds that just brings us condemnation and guilt and shame, but most of us have never broken through into that place where we are transformed by the Spirit and we stop gratifying the desires of the flesh. Why? Because most of us have never taken the time or the effort or the energy to be immersed in the life of the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. Most of us have not taken the time or the energy or the effort to be totally immersed in the Spirit. However, we do immerse ourselves in the life of the flesh most of the time. And what most of us have done is we've just tacked Jesus and church attendance onto every other part of our lifestyle, and we've just added him to our collection like keys on a keychain, rather than allowing him and the power of the Spirit to be the only key on the chain, we've just added him to the bunch. How many of you have ever found keys on your keychain that you don't even know what they are? <laughs> don't remember how I got there? It's just there. This is just coming to me. I wasn't even planning on this. That happens to me every once in a while. I'm like, what the heck is that key for? We do that, don't we? We just collect things and we carry them around with us and they never go away. 
And when it comes to Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, he's the only one that ought to be operating in our lives. The works of the flesh can be eradicated and put to death. Say crucified. 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 It can be put to death through the power of the Holy Spirit when we finally immerse ourselves in who he is. I don't want to put you off, but I am teasing you a little. Uh, in three weeks, I'm going to give you some how-tos. How do I immerse myself in the Holy Spirit? How do I walk in the Spirit? How do I break through to this new kind of life? Uh, three weeks, that will be our topic. Next week, I'm going to talk about what it means to live by the law of love. That's another one of these themes in Galatians chapter 5 that brings us a breakthrough and can help us to live a completely different life. Two weeks from today, I'm going to talk about the struggle that I've already been describing to you a little bit today, which is where we live most of the time. This flesh is struggling with what we know we ought to do. And uh, that will be our topics. Anyway, that's a little preview. Let me talk about the last way that the Holy Spirit helps us. And this is so beautiful. The last way the Holy Spirit helps us is that the Spirit produces good fruit. The Spirit produces good fruit. If you've been reading your your scripture cards the last couple of weeks from Galatians chapter 5, you remember that the works of the flesh, there's a lot of them. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, and the list goes on and on and on and on. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. This is what the Holy Spirit produces in you in contrast with all of those other things. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things come naturally. They grow out of people who are full of the Spirit. I fancy myself to have some sort of a green thumb. Well, I really don't. Uh, I like to grow. I like to try to grow things, <laughs> and and I have learned that when I'm growing things, uh, there are certain things you have to do to get things to prosper and flourish. Right? Uh, I, I, in particular, I love to grow orchids. Um, I've learned that if orchids don't get the right amount of humidity, um, and they don't get the right kind of fertilization, they're not going to bloom. We have an apple tree in our backyard that produces beautiful apples. But I'm, I'm trying to learn, what do I need to do to this apple tree? Last year, we got 13 beautiful apples. <laughs> I go out to visit Mary Ann's orchard, and you have thousands, maybe tens of thousands of apples and pears on your trees. I want thousands of apples on my tree. So what do I need to do to go from 13 to 1,000? I, I have to water it. I have to fertilize it. I have to prune it. What did I say? I just want more fruit. (laughs) I want one tree, lots of fruit. There are things I can do to help it along. but, But you know what? Ultimately, what produces the fruit? It's this miracle of life that produces the fruit. It's God's creation that makes an apple tree produce fruit. And it's the same way with the Holy Spirit in our lives. There are things we can do to cultivate these fruits, but it's really the Spirit that does it. 
And if I don't have the Holy Spirit changing me and transforming me and acting as this GPS system in my life, I will never be a loving person. I will never be a person who has joy. I'm going to be grumpy from now until Jesus comes if the Holy Spirit doesn't produce fruit in me. I will never have that abiding peace that just tells me everything is going to be okay if the Holy Spirit doesn't produce that in me. I'm never going to have the kind of patience and forbearance to love people. I'm never going to be innately kind without the Spirit. I'm never going to be really good. How many of you know somebody who's really good? Some of you do. I'm never going to be truly gentle. And ultimately, I'm not going to have any self-control unless the Holy Spirit produces that in me. What's my job? My job is to water my life by immersing myself in the Spirit of God. I can immerse myself in, 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 in legalism and rules and regulations and fences like I talked about last week. It's just going to result in frustration and anger and bitterness and shame. Or I can immerse myself in the Spirit of God and He's going to produce all of this beautiful fruit Instead of 13 apples, I'm going to find I have thousands of apples in my little Holy Spirit orchard. Okay, the metaphor is going way too far. Okay. <laughs> Let me give you some next steps, and then we're going to worship and pray together this morning. Next steps. The last couple of weeks, I've been asking you to read uh, from your cards, Galatians chapter 5. Uh, this week, if you're, if you're doing this with me, I want you to turn now to Romans chapter 8 and begin reading this every single day. I forgot to warn you, Irv, there's Romans chapter 8 cards. Can you get those passed out here while I'm talking real quickly? I've got new cards for you. So even if you have a Galatians card, take a new one. This is Romans chapter 8. And, and I've, I've talked to many of you who have taken this card and you've put it on your refrigerator or your bathroom mirror or whatever it is. Uh, I want to encourage you, read this every single day. Romans chapter 8 is probably my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. And it talks about how the Holy Spirit changes us. It talks about how the Holy Spirit empowers us. How the Holy Spirit brings fruit in our lives. And, and instead of this week me giving you a bunch of, of how-tos, Romans chapter 8 is your how-to. Read it this week again and again and again and ask the Lord to help you begin to live in that new paradigm of being immersed in the Spirit. Next step number two is this. Memorize Galatians 5.16. Such a great verse. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Is that too long for you to memorize? You've got it already. Say it with me. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then your third next step is to learn to walk in the Spirit. Again, in three weeks I'm going to give you a few more how-tos. But for now... You can start learning to walk by the Spirit by learning from Romans chapter 8. You can spend some time just asking God to speak to you through the Holy Spirit. You can seek what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which was described in Acts chapter 2. 
uh, even if you don't know entirely what all of this means, begin praying and inviting the Holy Spirit to take control of your lives. Does that make sense? John's going to teach us a new song this morning, and then I'm going to lead you in prayer. Uh, Would you put your things aside? And, And I'd like you to just stay seated. Would you just stay seated and uh, find a posture of of prayer and uh, you can follow along the words on the screen or you can close your eyes and listen. Either way, you can sing along, whatever you feel comfortable doing. But would you just begin to invite the Holy Spirit to do something deep in you as, as John leads us? Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, where?